but we do have the ability to change the world. In my world, um, I've never anticipated We're also trying to change paradigm. We're more than just a, a collection of uh, hammers and swords. It is such an exciting opportunity to really change brains. We always lose touch with common things that everyone uses and where they come from. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. We're also trying to change the paradigm of what is learning. Playing computer games for a living may sound like a dream job for many of us, but Arutus Foster has made the gamification of learning part of his life's work. As an associate professor of learning technologies in Drexel University School of Education, he leads the Games and Learning and Interactive Digital Environments Lab, and is also the founder of the Drexel Learning Games Network. Okay, so before we get started, let's get um, some preliminaries in. Yes, sir. Do you pronounce your first name Arutus? Yes, depends on where you are. If you're in the U.S., people say Arutis. If you're in Jamaica, they say Arotis. Arotis? Uh-huh. Okay, I want to try it the way that you are most comfortable with. Arotis? I'm comfortable either way because people butcher it a hundred different ways. I, okay, so your family, so you grew up in Jamaica? I grew up in Jamaica. So one of the things that we're really interested in uh-huh. is the story behind the person's um, professional fame, popularity, or expertise. Uh-huh. So walk us through how you get from Jamaica to here to the place where you sit today. In high school, I went to high school, Wilmers. So in Wilmers, I was, I was a science student. And there you take a common entrance when you're 10 years old, which is the equivalent of the PSAs here, to go to high school. So I did that day when I was 10 years old to start high school. So I started high school when I was 10 plus. But you're tracked. Tracking means that you're, you pick your subjects. Uh, so for me, it was the sciences. So all I did was physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, geography. You know, no arts, no business. None of that sort of stuff, and I was doing that for all of high school. When I was 13, I was doing physics. I remember one of the teachers saying, hey, you know, the, the, in terms of electromagnetism, the, you know, the waves go outside, the, outside, come out of the chalkboard like this, and he's turning his thumb and his right hand, and he's turning his left hand, and he's coming out the chalkboard like this. And I'm there trying to visualize, and of course, you can't see electromagnetic waves, and this guy's trying to show you his thumb, so it was just completely abstract, completely losing me and from that moment I realized that you know there's got to be a better way for to do this and I also realized that oh you know at that time science was really dull for me because I couldn't connect it I grew up very poor in a community called Rockford in East Kingston so for me you know I remember even on an exam the word antacid was there first time I was seeing the word antacid you know my couple of my friends who you know who grew up in more affluent homes that's a regular thing for them oh you take an antacid I'm like antacid that don't sound too good so for me, it was like, you know, science is just not working right there. So, so when I graduated high school, I decided I wanted to make a complete change. I passed all my CXCs and A-levels and that kind of stuff. And my first year at the University of West Indies, you know, I was, actually I took a year off to work in a radio station. So I was, you know, doing communications. I was a technical operator, doing all the technical stuff behind the scenes, um, playing reggae music on Saturday evenings. It was great. But then, after a while, I realized I really like this. And so I started the University of the West Indies, the Caribbean Institute of Mass Communications, CARMAC as it was back then. And then I realized that this is really what I want to do. So 
So I spoke with Alma Makian. She was a director for communications at the University of the West Indies, Mona campus. And she said, for what you really want to do, you've got to go to the US. And so there goes science out the window. But science never was really far behind. It was always in the back of my mind, I've got to make this better. So I decided to go to Brooklyn College. And they have a great program there in communications. When I started the communications program there, the first thing the instructor said was, oh, you've got to get an email. I'm like, email, holy crap. How do you set that up? Couldn't do it, so one of my friends said, let me set up your email. Set up my email, that was 1998 fall, all right? Set up my email, and I can tell this, by 1999, I was doing computer science, and I was teaching people how to use a computer. So going from a point where I didn't know to use it to a point where I'm teaching computers, working in a lab, showing people how to be using a computer, and then I decided, okay, you know what? I'm gonna continue focusing on computers because that's really what I really wanted to do in the first place. But I'm not gonna drop communication, I'm gonna double major. But then I realized that computer science is also, I don't want to sit all day coding. What I'm really interested in is the visual stuff, the digital media stuff. How can I make this stuff more visual appealing for people? And so I did a double major, digital media and communications, minor in computer science. I went to grad school. I, did, I didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of the visual means. What I do know is that I'm, I'm interested in how people learn, how to make the experience a lot better. So I realized that Oh, simulation and games, that's the way I should go. And I pulled on my, all my undergraduate degree experience, and I was okay, you know, these are things that are going to make things much more visual appealing, but more engaging for learners. And so I pursued that. In my program there, I, you know, I was one of two people. There's another guy who was pursuing it as well, and he knew exactly what he wanted to do once he got in. It took me a year to finally figure out, okay, what I want to focus on is simulation and games, not just broad technology or online learning, so to speak, but how do you apply simulation and games in different spaces? And more important, how do you focus on play? The play doesn't necessarily involve a game or a simulation. And so from then on, I pursued that. In my, I remember one, per, one, one faculty member said, you know, we don't do that here. And by the time I was graduating, you were saying, oh, lead me some readings. You know, because everything had transformed in terms of how we engage students and the technologies that we were, were, we were using. So I, I, saw, I combined my background in digital media, ed psych, ed tech, computer science, and everything that I learned in my PhD in terms of motivation and interest and technology to morph into this, I don't know what you call it. Now people, some people call it learning sciences. No, but that is much more than that. It's this, it's this background where all these things come together. It's like a confluence in a stream. You know, the dark water, the white water all comes together. And that's where I am right now. That kind of scholar where I... I tend to focus on how do we use technologies to, ex to, to engage people. So how are we using games and technology today that when you first started thinking about this, like back when you first went to graduate school, um, back before people understood that play was essential to learning, how is it that we're using technology today that we totally didn't even think about that as little as 10 years ago? So I think a lot, it's a lot more immersive. So back then people, and people still do, if you're not in the field, you tend to say educational games. I hate that term so much. What do you hate about educational you know, games? You, know, you can learn from all games. Right. Right. So I hate the term educational games, but I understand that educational games define a particular type of genre for people. Mm. And that was the, you know, math blaster, you know, those kind of games. Whenever I see the word educational games, I think, Boring. Bad game. Yeah, you know, I, 
And there's some research done by scholars that I know, some of them who mentored me as well, who do some good research that show that educational gain is usually shorter, yes. not as difficult, not as engaging, yeah. but and, you know, you know, not as immersive. So when people play games, they're not looking for easy. They're not looking for short. They're not looking for stuff that's not engaging. People right. are going to play, you know, you know, you ask most gamers, they want stuff that's challenging. So I like to say, I like to build my games to be what I call pleasurable, and you experience what I call pleasurable frustration. You know, it's like, oh, this is so hard, but I can't stop. And I want to do more. But it's so difficult. It's so challenging. How do I want to do more? That's where you want to get people. Because that, at that level, they're not driven necessarily by the game. It's their own internal, internal drives to be successful. So, so clearly it's not as easy as having a first-person shooter game landing on the alien planet and right before you go to take on the zombies you got to solve a quadratic equation like it's not that easy right no it's not easy and so people tend to think that okay i can just take one of these zombie games and just map on a formula and it will work but it's not a one-to-one -one thing it doesn't operate that way if you truly i think where games are right now is that the the designs the experience and everything completely tied and integrated with the curriculum so ultimately where we want to go is if you beat this game, it's an A because you did everything that you're supposed to do. Not like another, a game that I studied back in the past. I'm not going to mention a name, but it's just a math game. And you're, 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 you're running and jumping hurdles like Olympics. And then a, a question pops up on the screen. Three times three. And it has nothing to do with, with jumping hurdles. You know, and that's a mismatch. Yes. Right. You want it to be okay if it's three times three, for instance, then our people jump three times three hurdles, right? you know, something like that, Absolutely. where the play is connected to the, the content. The content should always, you know, in, in my philosophy of design, the content should always drive the experience. And content doesn't mean discipline. Content is whatever you want the person to experience. And you always hear me use the word experience because I don't like to use the word learn because learn is loaded. My thing is what you want people to experience. And then from, from that, the content is king. And then from that, you ask yourself, you know, how do I want them to experience that? That's the pedagogy. And then not just how do I want to experience this now, but the question is, okay, based on how I want them to experience it, what's the best technology, right? Sometimes your best technology is a piece of pen and paper, right? So, you know, and in, so sometimes that's the best thing. So you want to use the thing that's best to deliver the experience you want people to have, not the best, necessarily the best technology. Then you go about selecting based on that. And that's the way I approach designing my lab, the Glide Lab here at Drexel. So talk about the work that you guys are doing over at the Glide Lab. What is, what's on the books? So one of them is top secrets. I'm not going to mention it. I like to believe that there's a manila folder in your lab there's with the manila. word top secret top written secret. across it. And okay. people in my lab know this. You do not discuss this project outside the lab. Don't talk about it. All right. We're not talking about it. So my other projects is one called, you know, my NSF career. NSF career is an award given by NSF. It's the most prestigious award to early career faculty to help them along. So for that project, we're, we're engaging in analyzing um, games that supports identity exploration. And based on these, based on, based on these games now, we, we explore several exemplary ones. We look at the features that these games have, and then we compare them to a theory that I've developed called projective reflection. And in projective reflection, it's basically how I, how, I, how I define my experience. Like, you know, what do I want to become? Where am I right now? So projective reflection involves my current self. This is who I am. When you, when you walk in, for instance, to sit around this table, that's your current self, right? But there's a, there's a, there, there, there's a, there's a projected reality that you, that, you, that you don't know yet. So for instance, 
It relies on identity. The person you are right now is not the person that walked in. Now you know a lot more about my what, what, what you're doing. That has changed your identity a little bit. So I measure that over time with students. They enter a classroom, I want, I want, I want to experience different STEM experiences, for instance. I give them uh, their certain underlying skills that they want to do, and I measure their baseline. What's their current self? And I keep measuring that over time, a year, a these, few months. Are, are these subjective measurements where you go, how do I feel about who I am? Or are they objective measurements where I look at their performance in certain measures? They're both. So it can't be completely subjective because you can believe that you're a pilot, but if you can't fly a plane, you're not a pilot. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so... <laughs> I believe that I'm inherently a pilot. Yeah, okay, let's I go had, fly this jumbo jet. I had the experience, right. Yeah. right. So we measure them both ways. So it's, it's similar to what I'm talking about. So part of this NSF career is that we, we analyze these design features of these existing games. Now we map these onto my current theory, projective reflection, and then we design current games that we think could, what we want people to facilitate new identities, identity exploration towards identity change in different fields. Yeah. Are you suggesting that um, yeah. through my interaction with the game environment, I could gain a skill or confidence that would translate into my real life. And can you manipulate that as the person who's doing the design? I come in thinking I have no aptitude in science, but through my interaction with this digital, I, I don't know, maybe I'm um, doing surgery. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And I continue to do it until I'm really good at it. And that, you measure that over time. And you measure that over time. To that, see if you're gaining the knowledge, the skills, the, the values, you know. That I can make myself more fit for medical school? You can make yourself more fit for medical school. And that's the ultimate objective. The ultimate objective is that people may... So, for instance, a lot of minority students or you know, underrepresented kids, for instance, they don't have experiences, a lot of experiences. See, so you, you let them get in a, in, a, in, a, in a virtual space and they realize that, oh, you know, I've never done this before, but I'm actually interested in it. And by pushing that, you're, you're changing that person's identity. So now beyond the environment, you know what they're going to do? They're going to go read books. They're going to engage in different things that was tied to that experience. So that experience is, is, is a catalyst. It's not the end all. It's a catalyst to move beyond the virtual space. And we still assess those things. So the, so the idea is that you're not going to become a surgeon, right? But, you're going, but what it does, it shows that you have the knack, the aptitude, certain skills and values that surgeons well, and it exposes me to it as an area that you've never series of, that I've never had before. And I probably can't walk into a hospital and go, hey, I think I might be interested in surgery. Do you guys mind if I hey, put this way? People go to medical school, still can't walk into the hospital and do stuff. Guess that's what? Exactly. They still have to go to residents and that kind of thing. That's so exactly. ultimately, that's what you want. You want them to to realize that, oh, I, I don't know what it is to be an urban scientist. I don't know what it is to be a, a neurosurgeon. But from this experience, I realized that I do possess some of the underlying skills. Because the idea is not to focus on the career that you're currently experiencing in a virtual space. That's not the focus of our research. The focus is, because we don't want to tell people that oh, we're pushing it in particular careers. What we're focusing on is the underlying knowledge, skills, values, affect that are displayed, for instance, at people in engineering. And those things translate to different fields. And that's what you want. Tied to let them expose a different skill set. And then eventually, people tap into their own interests. Because the thing about motivation is that games, sims, virtual worlds, they don't motivate people. Motivation comes from people. What they do is they, they connect to people in ways that people didn't realize before. Because the idea for this is to pull something out of you, find something that you can connect to. And from that, you may say, okay, you know what? I really value this. I really want to pursue this. And value don't necessarily mean 
oh, I value this because the world values this. Value because I am personally interested in this. That's what we're trying to get at, that personal interest, that personal drive. And if you can really, really tap into people's own personal interest, you don't need a game. You don't need a virtual person. People are mathematicians not because it's a game. They like mathematics because it's mathematics. People like physics because it's physics. Ah, you know, I don't necessarily like mathematics, but if you ask a mathematician that he's not going to do mathematics because it's in a game, it's just because he likes mathematics. And that's where we want to get people to value the content and to like the content because it's the content. And any technology that you use is a catalyst for that. So I have a pet question, yeah. and that is... So you talk about the things that um, you love to focus on all the time, and people are always asking you questions. Mm -hmm. What is the question that you wish someone would ask you? There's always the assumption that, hey, this guy does games. Somebody asked me, what do you do? Right. How Simple do you question. How do you get paid? <laughs> you know, what do you get paid? What do you do? Do you just hide out in your cave? I'm Batman here, by the way. You know, so hide out in your cave, and you work with the students, and you work on games. Like, you know what? I focus on, I like to say, I focus on technology and learning. You know, game is only one type of technology, simulation, one type of technology. I focus on technology. I think more, you know, I, and people don't understand what it is for learning technologies as well. They think, they tell them you do learn technology, they think you're the IT guy. You know, so it's like, no, I don't do IT. What I do, I focus on learning. I know technologies can facilitate that process in innovative and transformative ways. And that happens to involve games and simulations and focusing on learning analytics and artificial intelligence, you know, and, and all those things. And those are the things that I, that, I, that I examine and research and study for the long haul in terms of how do we prepare kids to become self-reflective and can reconstruct themselves in the future? Because we know that in the future, no one's going to necessarily sit in a job for 20, 30 years. So Not the, anymore. So the idea is, how do I get you to understand that your normative experience should be one where you're able to reflexively reconstruct yourself in a way that, oh, if I'm doing this job, I can draw on these skills. And that's what my research focuses on. So in your next reconstruction, yeah. what are you going to be? In my next reconstruction, what I want to be? So right now, I'm heavily focused on learning analytics. Because to me, for the kind of environments that I want to create, they need to, my, my next level is artificial intelligence. Building artificial intelligence where I can, through this interview, for instance, my AI is listening to everything. It's learning about me. It's learning about you. Every time you do one, you learn a little bit more about you. It learns your interests, your likes, your dislikes. And so you can see that eventually it's, it's going to say, hey, Maurice, you didn't do this. It's my coach. It's your coach. <laughs> It's good. It will provide a more objective. It will provide a more objective direction for you because the one to we know that human beings are not is objective. Human beings are fickle, are yeah. biased, and so forth. So we, this AI will more to provide guidance. So, for instance, let's say we want to use. We're getting little kids in schools, and this is the ultimate goal for me, by the way. We have these kids who are going to school, and parents say, "Oh, Tommy likes to play soccer. Tommy likes music. Tommy likes to build things." And Tommy's using these systems at school every day in the system is collecting this information on Tommy and is slowly building a database on Tommy. He knows Tommy's likes and dislikes from home and at school because his parents are putting in stuff about him. Tommy's putting in stuff, teachers are putting in stuff. And so he learns about Tommy and eventually can say, hey, I know you said that Tommy likes being a, wants to be a musician, but the skill set that he's displaying said that he should be an engineer. So it 
ties with more to their interests and more to an era where they have a knack for. I love and, the and ultimately, idea of parents being in an argument with their big brother, yeah, coach I, of their child. That says, because you know, parents yeah, as well. Be a lawyer. When it comes up, when it comes onto your child, you can't be objective. So the idea that when you start having these these AI-based systems that's collecting information from virtual world, from schools, from home, and so forth, it will build a database about your child, your child, you know, likes, dislikes, values, skills, all that kind of stuff, and then able to to assist schools. Of course, there's all sort of different issues with this, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. You know, a lot of my friends, I'm working in Skynet. You are working on Skynet. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> I'm glad that doesn't exist now because yeah. I would hate for AI to just take a reflective moment and go. But you can. So, so, I mean, over the last couple of years, it's not so far fetched. How many times have you used Google? And every time Google say, oh, you're X amount of minutes from this place, like, I didn't tell you that. Because it keeps tracking where you're going every single day. It's, it's not so far. So the idea is, I think that the more we advance the technology, the more what I'm think, thinking about is not going to be so far-fetched or so ridiculous for people in terms of privacy. Dr. Arudas Foster, it is a pleasure having you on the 10,000 Hours. It's a pleasure being here, Maurice. And thank you guys for having me. The 10,000 Hours podcast is powered by Drexel University Online. 